Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with Leo Flowers. I'm, I'm today joined by, and I'm excited by this, uh, Dr. David Wexler and Dr. Mara Cohen. Uh, we're going to talk about ketamine and all its uses uh, in PTSD, anxiety disorders, and depression, uh, and grief, and trauma. Uh, but before we do that, we always want to start off with the 1-800-SUICIDE phone number. Make the phone call. There's no hierarchy of pain. Uh, if, just, if you just need someone to talk to, make that phone call. We all want to talk to someone. Uh, like I, And I've shared with you guys that I've, I've called the number two times already. Two times. And, 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 and you know, one of the times wasn't even anything major. I just really wanted to talk. So please make that phone call. Uh, Dr. David Wexler, Dr. Mark Cohen, please. I, I know nothing about ketamine. I'm excited about this in all its uses. Please share with me your passion. Sure. First of all, it's funny that everywhere we go, whether the topic is technology and healthcare or we're sitting with a group of friends, no matter what age, from teenagers to octogenarians, the conversation uniformly in the past four months turns to ketamine. Mm. Everyone is fascinated because we've got a new tool that our field has not had in more than More than three decades. Three decades. So right. we're, we're very, very excited. It's a new field, and it is a field that we've got about nine months of expertise doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy to treat trauma, depression, anxiety in extremely high-functioning people and in people that want to kill themselves and are committed to that end. And we have seen outcomes that are outstanding and remarkable and even so amazing that they're, uh, we're, we're hesitant to, to put the research out there um, so as not to overpromise, but it's incredibly exciting and it has become our passion. Fantastic. The, uh, Dr. David Wexler mm -hmm. uh, and Dr. Mara Quinn, can you both give us your backgrounds before we get into this? Sure. So I have been in practice since the mid 90s. Uh, did my undergrad back in Boston and then came back to the West Coast where I am born and raised um, to do my residency actually at Harbor UCLA. So great county hospital exposed to a widely ranging, you know, widely diverse demographic um, for which to this day I, I remain grateful. Um, following that, I sort of made my rounds and practiced in a, a variety of settings and a variety of locations, um, starting with the South Bay here in Los Angeles in a private hospital, and uh, then Boston uh, as a part of the adjunct faculty at, at Boston University for two years, then came running back with the, uh, the snow in 1996 beating me up, <laughs> um, and went into practice for two years with a private group in San Diego, um, and ultimately found my way to the Bay Area, uh, which was uh, my, my best fit. And after two years at Kaiser, set up private practice near Stanford um, and practiced there for a dozen years, uh, treating a fascinating population of primarily people in technology um, and for a, a few years treating one of the professional sports teams up there. Um, and uh, Can you say or you can't say? 
Uh, um, you don't have to say you got, yeah. You when you do an, ah, that lets me know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nah. right? So you know we're 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 on, but I can yeah. tell you that with a few things that happened during those three years with the team, yes. I got some anonymous threatening calls, saying you know you better not be treating so and so, you know who who fell on the field and passed out. Wow. Um, so anyway. I don't know. So or maybe a, that a, person needed your care. <laughs> I'm just saying. And I, and I wasn't treating that person right. <laughs> right, right. Um, at any rate, uh, over the dozen or so years up in the Bay Area, the population that I treated got more and more complicated, more and more treatment refractory, which you know by definition means they've been on a number of medications and they have not done the job. Um, and so my, my bag of tricks... Um, uh, needs always to be as big as possible. And so actually, that segues to this, this relatively newer chemical ketamine, which is actually not so new. Um, but, uh, but actually, by 2012, um, I needed a break and actually went off to Shanghai, believe it or not, where I lived and worked for almost two years and got a very interesting perspective on the interface between Western medicine and Eastern medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, whatever we might call it. Um, did that for a few years and then came back here um, where a childhood friend of mine was starting a functional medicine group, um, and which is also called integrative medicine in South Florida. And so through 2016, I was there, in quotes, director of brain health, um, did that for a year, and, uh, and then came back to California. So this is sort of a homecoming for me. Um, since 2016, for three years, I've been back in California, in Southern California at this point, um, practicing psychopharmacology, and more and more utilizing this new tool that we you know, are going to make the focus of today's discussion. And so, so I'm a psychologist. Uh, I consider myself a psychoanalytic shamanic psychologist, have deep training in both uh, theory and practice. Um, I met David when he came to South Florida to start that, um, that organization that he ended up staying with for about a year. Um, our sense is now that the important thing in, in that whole journey for him was us meeting and coming to collaborate together. Um, I moved an 18-year um, wonderful practice in South Florida um, with the eye toward this sort of newfangled, integrative um, connection and practice between David and myself. We were seeing outcomes that were extraordinary in the dyadic uh, complementarity of our medicines and care of patients. So, What a, what a great term. Di right. Dyadic. Dyadic. Yes. The dyad. Right. So, um, so uh, randomly, um, uh, and also with the election, um, I decided it was time to hop to the left coast so as uh, not to be among the haters and to just kind of come and find like-minded community and, you know, manifest destiny. You know, all of us Americans, um, that, that, that hit me hard and that idea of leaping into. I remember there was a, a poem by an Irish poet entitled, Leave Everything You Know Behind. And there was, uh, I kind of mantra that. And 
uprooted my practice and sold a bunch of real estate and jumped over here. And in 2017, our first shared ketamine client arrived to facilitate uh, development of this. And it was through the clinical work that this started, this idea started evolving and we started becoming very, very excited about the work that we're now deeply focused on. Can you, so can you, can you walk us through what that looks like now? And then we'll get more to the history of ketamine, but what, what is the, what does your treatment look like now? And cause you said it's, it's new. It's like nine, like nine months you've been practicing. What were people doing before, right? Wasn't it ketamine infusions? Or? Mm-hmm. Right. So with regard to ketamine or psychiatric, psychological treatment prior, what, uh, what, are, you, what are you asking? Well, I guess my question is, uh, what, how are you using it now in terms of treating uh, the, the mood disorders and grief and trauma? But, and then how was it used before? Like, because mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. you're doing is new and exciting, right? right. And, and yeah. this is something that a lot of people aren't aware of and, and we want to get the word out there. So I just want to yeah. get a compare and contrast. Sure. So, so I think the, the, the question is really how, at what point do you reach for ketamine in your tool bag? Right. Well, let me, let me go back a decade or so because that's where the story really starts in terms of psychiatric clinical practice. So as I mentioned, um, my niche, as much as I've run away from it, is really in you know, complex psychopharmacology, you know, difficult cases. Um, you know, I always welcome the more bread and butter cases, but this seems to be what has found me and what I do. Um, starting back in 2010, a very, very kind and skilled anesthesiologist who treated pain primarily up on the San Francisco Peninsula um, made himself available for my referrals. Um, and, and specifically, I would send people to him because of the literature that was emerging on ketamine's effectiveness targeting depression where other antidepressants you know, have not done the job. You know, for a particular individual. And I will never forget, uh, I was treating a woman who was actually a physician um, who had a near-fatal overdose and was actually out for three days. Um, they found her. She fortunately survived. And I promptly sent her to this anesthesiologist for ketamine by infusion. Well, you know, with, within a single treatment, the suicidal ideation that plagued her her entire adult life was gone. And you know, that left an indelible impression, and I started sending people more regularly to this anesthesiologist. Uh, I took a break from referring people in that capacity only because I was in China for two years, and that resource was no longer there. Well, lo and behold, I come back to the States. I'm in Florida. I want to refer people again. Um, And I'm unaware of resources, at least in South Florida. And I get a call from an anesthesiologist here in Los Angeles um, who is really at the forefront of the use of ketamine targeting refractory depression. And he tells me, one of your former patients sung your praises and mentioned that you might have availability to take on a few of my very difficult patients that I'm discharging from a course of ketamine by infusion. Um, You know, would you be available? And that started a relationship. 
with you know this this wonderful clinician here in Los Angeles who has one of the most popular ketamine infusion clinics, mm-hmm. most successful in the country. So when I came back here, it was a bit of a you know welcome home and you know let's let's meet face to face, and uh, well one thing led to another and with the networking that started happening down here in Los Angeles, um, a particular concierge physician asked if I had experience with ketamine and referred a, an, actually an out-of-state patient to me, a 50-ish year old man who had had depression and suicidal ideation. And substance in, abuse. And, and severe alcohol dependence, so an alcohol use disorder. Um, yeah, his entire adult life. And so the, the internist asked, what, you know, do you have experience with this? To which, you know, I responded, of course, yes, I do. Um, let me see what I can do. And he was coming out here to California anyway. We set up an appointment. And uh, I did the evaluation. And yes, you know, severe persistent depressive disorder, um, severe alcohol use disorder, History of suicide attempts, additionally. History of multiple, what should have been lethal, lethal. suicide attempts. And I ended up sending him to this ketamine clinic here in Los Angeles and promptly referring him to Maura Cohen for psychotherapy. And maybe I'll, I'll, I'll let Maura continue the story. So, again, um, so this was our first kind of exposure to ketamine as... Uh, a molecule, an agent, a chemical that really got our attention in its ability to do something that we formerly have not been able to do. And it's two things, really. It's stopping acute suicidality, and then also the other element is treating longer-term depression. Suicidality is a, uh, I think, a running out of ideas moment in a life, and chronic depression can fuel that and can trigger that. So the two things need to be addressed, and ketamine was demonstrating itself as an agent that could address both. And so that really got our attention. Um, In fact, it was being used in emergency rooms already uh, when people would present with acute suicidal ideation. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they were being given it as an infusion, and within hours, their suicidal thoughts, their suicidal ideation would completely resolve. So our idea of this being something new isn't really true in terms of its use for uh, suicidality. The way you're using it is, is new, but the but hospitals have been using this uh, for... For a decade. For a decade, right. okay. Since 2010. Yeah, we can go back into the and history of it. I believe right. the we, molecule we, was identified in the The late 50s. 50s. So we'll, right. we'll take a look at that because it's somewhat interesting to just ground us in the present, um, kind of knowing where we are in yeah. history. Um, but this was a patient that Maura Cohen would historically have not taken on in practice. I would, ha- I would not. And, and in fact, when Dr. Wexler called me and said, hey, I'm sending you a file. I'd love for you to take a look at this. I think um, difficult case, but I think you might be able to do some great work here. I read the file, and it was replete with multiple suicide attempts and a um, alcohol use disorder that rendered this person 
not able to do much except for two hours a day. And so my schedule was tight. I didn't know if I could fit into that very delicate, precious substance abuse availability window. And I said, you know, uh, I, I don't think this is a, a wise match for me. Maybe I could refer to a therapist that would be willing. Uh, my sense is that this person wants to kill themselves and in, is intent in on doing of, so. In spite of extreme affluence, and, and which so, is a, an important ahead. point. So, so, yeah, this is a person who had incredible resources. So I say that to Dr. Wexler, and, and we're, we're about a year and a couple months in knowing each other as clinicians and practicing together. And I'm, so I'm coming to, to, to develop a trust in, in his acumen and his view of things. And he says to me, please take another look at the, at the file. Give it another day. And I say reluctantly, okay. I take another look at it, and he adds, this person has an education history that I think you might find um, resonant with your mind, and you may be able to do extraordinary work. Just keep that in mind as you reread. Wow. I reread the case. I remembered who I was. And I knocked on his door, and I said, this person may kill themselves. And I'm in. I'm in with you. Let's do this. And what did that? Because you know, he, the, your your intuition, your initial instincts was, I I don't want to take this on, and so what on the psychotherapy side? And, that, and that's a, that's a really good point. What was your what was your blueprint? What were, what were the steps? So so it was remembering that um, my shamanic training taught me that sometimes the most difficult job is given to the youngest shaman, the shaman that doesn't know that it can't be done. And so while I am a very seasoned clinician of a couple of decades about, and I know my way around trauma and depression. Yeah, you, you may want to mention your unique educational background. The psychoanalytic shamanic. So I'm deeply, um, extremely uh, well-educated um, by some national treasure minds in psychoanalytic thinking about um, trauma and attachment and um, all the vicissitudes across the lifespan. Um, and I find that grounding to be essential. Um, after my PhD uh, and postdoc in um, psychoanalytic thought, um, I trained with the shamans because I found myself working at the VA hospital and came up against um, a lot of death and trauma and suffering. And I approached every pastor and rabbi in the, within the, on the staff at the hospital uh, in a particularly difficult week where patients were, I was losing, losing patients. I was working on the cancer ward. Um, and uh, I met with every one of the um, thinkers, the spiritual thinkers on the staff for assistance and help. And I left those meetings thinking, OK, it, it's on me on me. I, I didn't, I, it wasn't accessible. And so let me keep looking. And so I went back to the Carlos Castaneda and the early earth keeper sort of wisdom holders. And I began a five-year course of studying with the shamans in Peru and consider that level of training equally important to my PhD and postdoc. So when you say shaman, 
I have, I don't, what does that mean? So it means uh, energy medicine broadly and roughly. It means using unseen forces that we all can kind of feel at times. You walk into a room, it feels wonderful or it feels get me out of here. Uh, we all feel that. We don't know what to call it other than, I don't know, weird or let's, let's, let's change venues. Um, so using those sort of things in a very, very directed way and learning to sense, learning to use all those. We're all seers. Uh, we're, we all have a sense. We all have a, an access to those that other, that sixth sense. So a study in shamanism teaches, the, teaches a lot of structure of unconscious worlds, but also teaches how to pay attention to that gut feeling you get when it says, just go that, go home that way. And then you kind of look right and you're like, oh my gosh, giant accident. So, you know, was that, just, was that just random or was it in Carl Jung's terms, some type of synchrony that we're able to tune into? I do believe we're not trained in that and I loved going to what a lot of people called Harry Potter school. Going to learn how to train with, you know, with, with the unseen forces. With the you know with what the children haven't yet unlearned, how to use you know forces of, of energy that are all around us. So, um, I I deeply value and, and, and all note, that learning. Note that Mora just picked up a magic wand. Yes, yes. Yeah. So so my office is filled with with totems of all of the energy holders that represent the philosophy and the wisdom of that um, that ancestral tradition, the, the Incan um, Peruvian shamans. You know, it makes sense because, I mean, even when, you know, we were, before we did the podcast, they, they, they both have their separate offices and, you know, both offices had a different energy. Absolutely. You know? yeah. And, uh, you know, walking in, I was like, oh, I like this office. Then I walk into your office. I was like, oh, this is, it, it's, it's, you know, more open. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like your office, Dr. Works, felt more intimate. Mm. But your uh, Dr. Uh, Cohen felt more open, mm. uh, and so it's, mine, it's mine is a bit more sort of clinical, right? I, feels absolutely. feels more medical. And, and you know and what I think it was is the table is the difference, right? Right. You have a right. table in front, and so to me on a subconscious level, that's like stop. You know, stop at the table where mm -hmm. like you don't have a table, right. so it's like come right on, come yes, right on yes, in. yes. So it's all these subconscious you're things. Absolutely that right. You're not thinking consciously. You got it. What is affecting your uh, your decision and your behavior and how yeah. you you show up? Well, and, and I'd imagine that people have all sorts of preconceived notions around what a shaman must look like. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I was definitely not so, thinking right. Dr. Mark yeah. Cohen. So when I, when I refer right, right. my patients to Dr. Cohen and I tell them that, well, she's a shaman, right? And they want to know. And then they know, see me and they're like, wait, what? what? Mean, yeah. Her? Who, what? Steve, Stevie Nicks? <laughs> what, uh, right. What does Dr. Cohen look like? Yeah. Uh, right. One of the questions Earth, people Earth were woman. asking but me no. about uh, the treatment of, of ketamine and its use is... Uh, how soon, because, you know, when we talk about uh, the treatment of uh, mood disorders uh, with SSRIs and mm -hmm. different, like, usually it takes six weeks to eight weeks to kick in, right? Great point. Whereas with ketamine, I think we're seeing a quicker turnaround. Uh, right. Can you speak more to that? Well, so you know, the, the spirit, and, and actually we're not finished with the story of this gentleman no, yet either, so we'll go back to that. 
Sure. But uh, the spirit of your statement is right. Uh, but in point of fact, actually, after two weeks' exposure to an SSRI, when given to a person with the right symptom profile, okay. you have a. And there was a study that was that was done in Boston, I guess, coming up on a decade ago, um, that showed that you have a 90% accurate look at trend two weeks out. So you have a sense of whether the person is is showing improvement or not. So that's good. That doesn't mean that it's not four weeks, five weeks, six weeks before you see the full potential of what the medication will do. But two weeks can um, also be a long time, to Leo's point. Absolutely. Two weeks well, so can that's be a super long this, this, time if somebody who's suicidal, right, right. who's so really the, at, the, at, the, at their, you know, kind of edge. Right. So again, right, the, the, yeah, the spirit of your, of your statement is right on. Um, with ketamine, you see results, um, you know, with the, with the first treatment. Within hours. Within hours, right. When it works, you know, which is, which is often which is 80-ish percent of the time. 80-plus percent. They're right. even saying 87 in some Right, depending research. on the right individual practitioner's experience. Mm -hmm. um, so that is incredibly exciting. You, if you Google ketamine, what's going to come up are these infusion clinics. So, and that actually, that takes us back to this patient mm -hmm. because, so he came here from out of state um, and you know, as, as I said, I sent him both to Maura Cohen and also to this infusion clinic here in Los Angeles. Um, and actually, you know, I'm, I'm thinking whether or not uh, it would be a good thing to bring up the clinician's name. Um, well, you can say it and then follow up with that person, and then I could bleep it out if if it's an issue. Okay. Yep. Um, I, I mean, I think he'd welcome it. I don't think he'd welcome it. <laughs> At any rate, okay. Yeah, we're big fans. Um, so you know what? We're big fans of his. Yeah, we're, we're huge fans. All right. And, I mean, he has done, I mean, a, a tremendous service to the community. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to running one of the most, so the doctor is an anesthesiologist by the name of Stephen Mandel. Okay. A very, very kind man um, who actually sort of pivoted away from a conventional anesthesiology career into offering these ketamine infusions for depression. Mm. And, uh, and he's unabashed in his description, in his describing his own journey, and the fact that having had you know, depression in his own family, and I think worse, um, compelled his uh, starting to shift into this space. So at any rate, um, so we sent this patient over to Dr. Mandel's clinic and uh, he had a, a very, very interesting first couple of infusions in which uh, there was, you know, such such an interesting set of, you know, experiences, dissociative experiences that he had during the infusion that he took it upon himself to record his session mm. and then send each of us, Dr. Cohen and myself, a copy of you know, the sounds, the words, uh, what the experience was like for him. And that ended up, you know, being a real light bulb moment for the two of us because I thought, wow, um, you know, there's all sorts of material that's coming up here that may have considerable importance, considerable meaning, fodder for Dr. Cohen to process with the patient. So I thought, 
gosh, what if, you know, we started offering psychotherapy during the course of exposure to the chemical? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then learned, you know, that, that this was not a unique notion, but that there weren't too many clinicians doing it yet. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to let Dr. Cohen. So, yes, yeah, so f- for us, it, this, this idea came about organically through working with this patient. He was having an intense time during the first couple of infusions. The dissociation was intense. He was experiencing things that were um, frightening and dark, and that can be part of the dissociative experience. It, it is not always. Um, but for this person, um, my clinical concern was that it was an impediment potentially to continued infusions and to finishing the treatment. So a dropout rate would be an incomplete treatment um, for depression, and then we wouldn't really know if it was helping or not because the patient couldn't tolerate it. So it was um, my attention to his concerns was in order to facilitate the treatment. So I asked for um, the Dr. Mandel to bring his phone to him during the infusion and have him record every bit of unconscious, subconscious material that was coming up so that I could have my way with it and essentially be in his mind while he's dreaming, essentially, in the altered state. As a shaman, I speak about ordinary reality in which we are all sitting and non-ordinary reality, the dream state or the altered state through chemical or drumming or rattling or any one of the jungle medicines um, or any of the psychedelic medicines that are um, circulating and hopefully having a renaissance. Um, so this gentleman brought in this unconscious material and we had a wonderful time with it. It was probably two to three weeks of intensive psychotherapy in between his infusions. And uh, to say that this was an unexpected outcome uh, is an understatement. This person is uh, depression-free, alcohol-free, and meaningfully engaged in wonderful work and uh, political activity. That's fantastic. And, and, and during the course of the treatment, attempted suicide. Did attempt suicide while under our watch. So it was not a, you know, my concerns initially were not unfounded. This, this gentleman was um, very committed to potentially killing himself. And on that day, um, that is not something a clinician ever is happy to hear. The person coming in and saying that they are are coming in after having attempted suicide, uh, and with a with fairly lethal means. Not not we we do distinguish between uh, levels of lethality of a of a suicide right. gesture act attempt, and this was a uh, and a it, pronounced and, and, and lethal. Right. Yeah, he had an in- intent to not die. Um, and so my attitude and perhaps some other clinicians' attitudes is I respect a person's desire uh, or will or free will to make a choice to not be here. Um, but as a clinician, um, if they make that choice, um, I'm not consulted and, and I'm out. So at that point, it was kind of a critical decision for the team. Do we want to keep you know, if we're working harder than you are, um, probably probably not going to be the best outcome. You're right. If you're ready to, um, to to dive in again, if you'll hang on, if you'll stay in this held environment, 
with us. We believe we can see a different way for you. Stay the course and let's see what happens. And he agreed and we proceeded and he finished treatment. That's such a great story uh, for so many reasons. One is, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, they may they go get treatment, whatever treatment it is, and they may attempt after receiving treatment and then just give up completely. Right. And you guys are saying, you know, it, tr- treatment was administered. He attempted again and 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 with very strong, uh, strong attempt and uh, and then continued treatment and is now uh, free of depression and, and free of the suicide. How no, it's soon? Not, no, it's, not, it's not without concurrent, you know, psychopharmacotherapy. So right, he, he's on meds at the same time, and I think that's an important point to make. Right. As well. per, yeah, because right. you guys are working together as a team, right? This Absolutely. is this is right yeah, psychopharmacology the- and psychotherapy. Working together, it's is Batman and Superman, or Su- Super Wonder Woman and, mm. and and Super. I don't know if Aquaman. you're a Batman, Aquaman. Right. All right, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Coming uh, together. Yep, yep. And Everything how soon good. after you guys initiated treatment did he attempt? Just to give the listeners an idea of like, oh, it's not just. Yeah, it was. It was very early on. Second okay. week or so. Second week, right, right, and. And, you know, which if, if we wanted to go into it, mm-hmm. right, begs the question, why do people attempt, mm. right? And, and among the myriad reasons, one of them is, you know, target behavior. I mean, how, you know, how, how committed are these clinicians to my well-being, um, you know, as a layer, as a layer of it? Because that was his last attempt. And it was fascinating. It was fascinating during the course of the infusions and the work with me and with Dr. Cohen, watching the quantity of alcohol imbibed steadily decreasing, his mood steadily improving, um, you know, with with a a layer of disbelief on his part, Mm -hmm. you know, until over time it stuck. Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. Yeah. And... uh, yeah, after, you know, after the completion, what, of, of several weeks, because the typical infusion, you know, protocol is two-ish weeks of typically three infusions per week. Okay. And the, you know, the, the, the rationale is that each successive treatment potentiates the duration of benefit. So you go treatment, treatment, treatment. After a single treatment, people will often get four to seven days of mood support from it. Mm-hmm. So if you do a second one, you know, 48 to 72 hours afterwards, you then may get a few weeks from it. It you know, varies a lot from person to person, but that's the, the current protocol with infusions. So, you know, with this experience, we had the thought, well, gosh, I mean, why, why don't we maybe plant ourselves down in Dr. Mandel's clinic and sit in these otherwise sterile infusion rooms and take advantage of the experience and do therapy during the experience? Which hasn't quite happened, but we instead have, you know, taken this into our own offices um, and... Uh, Actually, as we really delved into the research, um, you know, we learned, and, and actually also watching this anesthesiologist up in the Bay Area, um, after these infusions, giving people lozenges 
So there are there are other formulations of ketamine that we're using now. And by the way, there's a new medication that is coming to market. Um, but ketamine can be compounded right, into lozenges, into an oral formulation, um, into an, an intranasal, so a spray, um, intramuscular, so an injection, and IV, intravenous. So we um, have actually started offering people, well, actually, so let me, let me take a couple steps back. Um, so, so the anesthesiologist up in the Bay Area and the uh, Dr. Mandel, the anesthesiologist down here, following these infusions would either put people on a sort of monthly booster protocol because, again, you know, it's, it's hard to predict how long the benefits last. Okay. So for some people, you know, after a month, they feel their, their mood starting to deteriorate again, and so they're given a booster. Um, is a, when you say booster, is in another infusion? An, another infusion, okay. a single infusion, okay. usually. And then Dr. Mandel may also prescribe either the intranasal formulation or the trochees, which are the lozenges, okay. and put people you know, on, on some sort of, of you know, administration schedule, say you know, three, three nights per week, three evenings per week. Um, but that's frontier psychiatry. I mean, there's still no consensus protocols you know, in place for exactly how to do this. Okay. So I actually right, took, took the lead there and started prescribing um, trochees and you know, intranasal formulation in a few cases. Um, and with Dr. Cohen, we started offering our own ketamine-assisted psychotherapy sessions where people would come in, I would give them the chemical, administer it, take a blood pressure after a, a pretreatment screen to make sure that they were good candidates for it. Um, Dr. Cohen would take them through an initial evaluation even prior to doing the ketamine session to make sure that they were good candidates as well. And then they would come back for this two-and-a-half-hour-ish session usually where I would administer the medication and they would ideally go into a dissociative state and under the guidance and expertise of Dr. Cohen, they'd be taken through a therapy session. So, which would typically last, typically lasts, what, 90 minutes, sometimes two hours? Now, what does that disassociative right. state look like? Because I've had people ask me about that. You know, I was like, you right. know, I posted sure. on Facebook, hey, I'm going to interview, you know, two uh, psychiatrists and a psychotherapist about the, and they were like, what, what, what is this dissociative state that happens? And mm -hmm. so what does that look like? And is treatment always, psychotherapy always good in that state? Great, so, great question. Beautiful question. Um, we find that the, the dissociative state is one that is ripe for psychotherapeutic productivity. We know that psychotherapy, talk therapy, in and of itself rewires the brain. Thoughts are things, and they show up if we watch the brain thinking, we can see what thoughts look like, where they're firing from, what areas they light up, Fear is in one area, excitement in another, critical thinking in another. Um, and so we know that with the use of certain chemicals, ketamine being one of them, the brain is more receptive to its uh, neuroplasticity, to 
changing how thoughts go down a highway. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's it's so it's important to comment that the chemical itself has a mood support effect. So biologically, and then the the therapy on top, um, it's as if the the chemical peels away the layers of defenses, and then the therapist um, can actually take advantage of that. And during the therapy, typically the patient finds his or her way to very, very salient material or experiences in their life. Yes. Right? That, that otherwise might be defended against. For example, sometimes if a person has experienced a trauma, say a plane flying into a building in their city, um, experiencing 9-11, mm -hmm. um, in order to feed the kids, get the work done, drive home, uh, be ready for the next day, they don't think about that trauma 24-7. It, uh, it would be very metabolically expensive. It would, be, um, it would take a whole lot longer to get anything done if you were focused on what could happen, what did happen, being in the future and in the past, and kind of trying to weave together a narrative of what your life actually what does that mean that we live in a world where trauma and horrible things happen? Right. So we as humans, we do think about those things. Um, we tend to cordon them off for the efficiency portion of life in order to get through the day, in order to get our running shoes on and get that run done. If we're devastated by some genocide that's going on or some event that was soul crushing, um, it will be harder to get the sneakers on. It will be harder to get that solid run in. It will be harder to see the trees and, and hear the birds. Um, so ketamine um, helps us peel away that, that very useful level of defense that in everyday life, in ordinary reality, we want and we use. We don't want to think about the potential dangers of, of being in a large city while we're doing something. Right. Um, so in that ketamine state, um, when a person begins to feel a little bit, we hear words like floaty. Um, there are descriptors like taffy, which right. is just kind of marshmallow-y, a, um, a hmm. swirly and energy. The dissociation refers to a separation between mind and body, feeling like I am not my body. Um, some language is a little bit useless when we're talking about the non-ordinary state because it's a bit transcendent. It goes kind of beyond language. It is, it is hard to discern. Um, and so having a psychotherapist who is familiar with the cartology of the levels of consciousness, I know right where they are when they say floaty. I know where they are when they talk about clouds and colors and when synesthesia starts to, to blend in where colors are tasted and, and, and textures are smelled. So weird. Right, so smell, uh, uh, right. defining synesthesia mm -hmm. is important. You know, that makes so. sense because, you know, if, if you've never had a ketamine infusion, uh, you don't know what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it could be scary for you to go through some of those stages, uh, even if they're not harmful or really scary by nature. It's just the fact that you're experiencing something you haven't experienced before Absolutely. or it's floaty. I can't remember the last time I felt taffy or floaty so yeah i would definitely want somebody to be like taffy is normal <laughs> you know so so that makes sense that you would definitely pair up the uh, psychopharmacology with the psychotherapy and have somebody there to kind of 
walk you through what you're experiencing to kind of normalize it. Yes. And then you can it's, it's fascinating. have it's that conversation. Experience. It's also it's important that the public know that the chemical by and large is is extremely safe. Okay. I mean, it's on many national formularies around the world and is considered among the safest of available chemicals on their medication formularies. What's now, because what the myth is like, you know, that when you look at uh, ketamine, you know, people go, oh, special K. And and so that associate what's what are we doing differently? Right. Like, how has it been used? Or or horse anesthetic. Yeah. Horse anesthetic. And and so. Or what are we doing differently, you know, versus how it's been used at parties and raves mm-hmm. and, you know, because uh, the dosage, right, or the, is the dosage different, I would assume. Do you want to talk so, to that? So I think maybe now would be a good time to bring in the history, the history of the of, drug, sure. and then we can we can talk about different aspects of that. Right, okay. sure. So let's do that together. Um, Right. So the, the drug was synthesized actually in the late 50s. And when you look at the literature, you know, it, it says, you know, 1957, it says 1960, it doesn't matter. But it was back at around that time. Um, and in the early 60s, they actually trialed it on inmates at a federal prison, I think, in Michigan, Michigan. Jackson, right, prison. Um, and they noted that it had very potent anesthetic analgesic and antidepressant effect. Um, It was actually then legalized for use in 1970. Um, And I think then within three, four years, um, it it basically, it it stopped being used. Um, Yes, I mean, it coincided at that time with some good research was coming out in terms of its potential help for uh, depression. It was also used for um, sh- short-term surgeries, like eye surgery, right. um, to right. have people just go under in a very brief time, very safe. Um, it was also used during that time as a battlefield evacuation tool right. um, in Vietnam and uh, in Korea. And what they found was that um, it helped decrease the mortality rates when there was a critical incident on the battlefield um, to immobilize and calm down, create a dissociation of the person's experience between their body, which maybe sustained an enormous trauma like being shot or some body part being blown off, to keep that person calm and not taking in the full realm of the horror helped increase their their chances of um, being alive. Um, that drug was also used in helping the um, soccer team, the kids, uh, the, as they were being the, evacuated. The Thai boys. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Every single one of them who survived were given ketamine on their way out. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it facilitated their getting out without panicking. Yes. Right. And, w- and so what form last... of ketamine did they receive? Do you know? That's a great I I'm, I'm don't gonna, know. I, I would but guess. I probably shouldn't, but I'd guess I am. Probably. A, uh, a, a an shot injection. Oh, gotcha. Injection. Probably. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so, I, you know, so I, I, think, yeah. I think use was suppressed in the early 70s with the Just Say No to Drugs campaign. Yeah, the war on drugs right. and, and war any drugs. sort of association with a, a psychedelic. Right. Uh, the, they were shutting down psilocybin research right. at Johns Hopkins and LSD. Berkeley. LSD. 
LSD. Right. There was some incredible research coming out that uh, Michael Pollan speaks about that beautiful history mm -hmm. in his book. Mm -hmm. right. um, and uh, so there was a lot lost. And we are essentially picking up that psychedelic research where it left off. We've got a rich history and hopefully a rich future. Yeah, so do, do you guys feel like things like LSD and, uh, is it psilocybin? Oh, psilocybin. Mm -hmm. You think, because are those... Are those illegal, or what? What? Where? Where are we at with that right now? I don't know. Are we? So, are we microdosing so those? So psilocybin. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, and yes. yes. Okay. And yes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, ketamine is the only legal dissociative psychedelic medication on the market currently. Okay. MDMA uh -huh. and psilocybin uh -huh. are in third phase FDA trials for treatment of right. trauma, currently. Okay. And how and do you get? And the city of Denver apparently is putting to vote the potential to legalize psilocybin. Wow. Mushrooms. mushrooms. So that's that's coming. And so uh, I'm, I'm assuming you guys are on board with the uh, bringing forth of the, the LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, uh, to certain, you know, in terms of if, as long as it's in uh, being handled in a therapeutic uh, professional. We method. are... I, the, the short answer is yes. yes. I think okay. we've got a very safe environment here in which to contain and you know really sort of take maximum therapeutic advantage of what these chemicals can offer. Is there an so, age uh, that this uh, is this for any age, or is there an age where this wouldn't be the best for we? You know, because you know, from what I understand, like the the when we're talking about just a human uh, frontal cortex, right, in a male, like that's usually not developed until twenty five, right. So are are we wanting? But we also know that there are plenty of people below the age of twenty five that are struggling uh, with depression. So are we looking at it for that age range also below twenty five, or are we? Um, so are we still finding out? We're still exploring. It, the latter. Okay. We're, we're still we're on a steep learning curve. Right. Right. Um, and in fact, we have you know, so Dr. Cohen and I have done what three three dozen cases now, mm -hmm. and you know the the demand is you know increasing like wildfire. Right. So we're booking out more time um, to get more experience with it. And there was a report that just came out. Where is it? Um, by the Phil Wolfson group up in the Bay Area, 235 cases from mm -hmm. three groups. So a group in Texas, a group on the San Francisco Peninsula, and a group in, in San Francisco and Marin. Um, and so, I mean, we are you know voraciously culling data um, to, to learn as much as we can about this. But, you know, we're really on the front line. I love it. Um, there are so many people who um, are taking other prescription medications are there if if are there certain medications if someone is already taking that they should not then eliminate them as a candidate for the ketamine infusions or a sublingual are we still exploring that we are exploring that there are certain medications um actually not worth mentioning at this point okay. but that if it's a part of one's regimen, mm -hmm. you know, we would advise that they hold it for, you know, six hours prior. Um, you say hold it, what do you... Not not take the medicine. Okay, okay. You know, for six-ish right. hours prior to the treatment. Okay. 
but that's also that's a really good question, and we are learning by doing that there are certain medications that may actually detract from efficacy, from effectiveness of, of ketamine, both biologically and in the therapy setting. What are some of the, um, you know, when people are coming off other prescription meds, sometimes that can be um, brutal, withdrawal symptoms. Mm -hmm. Are we seeing the same things with, because let me, let me go back a little bit. How many sessions are, are we talking? Uh, how many sessions of uh, uh, psychopharmacology uh, or, or infusions itself are we talking? And then therapy usually combined together. Uh, will we see, will we get somebody to the place where depression-free, end of suicide, and I know everybody is different, situations mm -hmm. are different. But on average, before we get somebody at least to zero, right, to, to neutral, what are we looking at? So again, the research is, is emerging. Right, and right. in our clinical experience of about 36 cases, um, we've, we would say between uh, a handful and uh, 25 is what the newest literature is saying. That's the most that, that has been published. But what's notable is that what we see immediately, even after the first ketamine-assisted psychotherapy session, which we affectionately refer to as CAP. Um, I like that. So after the first CAP session, people have a kind of um, hopefulness and an excitement, even if there isn't a full... Uh, diminishment of symptoms, there is a sense of um, I'm getting better. Excitedness right. in the process. And hope, hopefulness. And yeah. hopefulness, I mm -hmm. think, is the best word. Um, a sense of, okay, that was really something we hear the word profound. We hear um, different than anything I've experienced before. Um, they are yeah. excited. Grateful, grateful on a level that we neither of us would normally otherwise see. So at that juncture, we so. might see a, a score on a depression measure, like a Beck depression inventory, mm -hmm. that's only a couple of points lower than the, the intake score. Um, and we expect that to go down after each session, um, and maybe even into the non-clinical realm after six or so sessions. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, this is rather bespoke treatment. We are putting together a treatment plan for each individual that comes to us, and it looks different each time. Some people are coming just for, um, you know, with, without a whole host of suicidal depression issues with some kind of lesser issues and are finding that they are experiencing um, um, a way to take moments that are kind of flashes of illumination that occur in a, in a ketamine state, in the dissociative state, uh, and making it into kind of an abiding light that can shine on their lives. So these changes, the idea is that these changes remain, these changes deepen and they proliferate and that a life looks quite different um, as the symptoms start to resolve. Excellent, excellent. And then going back to the, once people stop the infusions, are there uh, side effects? Are there withdrawal symptoms? Are there... Um, you mean after completing the therapy, the, the CAP sessions, or 
and infusion protocol. Uh, let's let's talk about the let's do cap sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know with the cap sessions that's going to take. We're looking at at least like a, a a month, right? It's over months, right, right? Right. Because following a cap session, then Dr. Cohen does what we call an integration session because people don't remember all of the material that was experienced during the session. Oh wow! Right, right. And Dr. Cohen is frantically writing, 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 writing throughout. I mean, yeah, prolifically, right? Five pages, 10 pages sometimes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so she then gets the patient to come back in and review the material. And sometimes it's one integration session and then another cap session. Sometimes it's a couple. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will never forget, after the first cap session that we did together, um, you know, Dr. Cohen made the comment, I never want to do regular psychotherapy again. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is really, this yeah. is psychotherapy on steroids. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and it is. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, with the psychopharmacologist involved in real time, I am adjusting their psychotropics, their, their non-ketamine psychiatric medications right. in real time. Right. And, uh, And I'm at the point right now, and this is definitely not standard of care, but where some people who have not done well on any antidepressants and have responded to ketamine are now, I'm I'm prescribing the ketamine in another form, um, again, usually sublingual, so usually lozenges, Mm -hmm. and it's keeping them well. When Going back to what you were saying earlier, Dr. Marcon, in terms of, you know, if the patient their client is not willing to do the work. Like if I'm working harder than you, then, you know, something's not right here. Right. Mm -hmm. What kind of work are we talking about that people need to do? Because it's one thing, you know, to get the infusions or take the sublinguals and then, but the real work really happens afterwards. Right. When it's like, now you have to exercise your own muscles and your own will to create a lasting effect and build on now that we got you to zero Mm -hmm. it's like what kind of work uh is that does that look like for a typical client that's coming in so there could be so very many reasons why someone doesn't want to live or is ambivalent about living um and in many ways i see the human condition as where, you know, Freud would say that we have a will to live, the libido instinct, and also a thanatos instinct, the will to die, the will to self-destruct. And so that's not an uncommon thought. Uh, You know, the idea of what if I weren't here? Or, and then it's, and then it goes into the realm of being actionable in which we start to mobilize and become concerned and, and create safety plans around that. But um, understanding why a person is in that juncture of feeling like they, their best option is exiting, is, is self-annihilation. So that's a big deal. It's a very big deal. It kind of goes against the, the, the life instinct, number one. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that is the realm of both psychopharmacology, but also psychology, to really inquire and really wonder with the person, what is that made of? What does that feel like in your body? What, what, is, what is compelling you? What would be a thing that, if it were changed, would make you feel completely the opposite? Like, today could be a good day. What, what would that be? You know, sometimes it's, uh, we know that food has a big 
impact on a person's brain chemistry. We know that their friends and family also do. Sometimes people are in relationships that are toxic and require a change, a job. If, if someone is an accountant and really is a screenwriter, uh, that probably is going to need addressing. There's no way around that. So starting to identify in a, in a safe place, but with a little bit of um, abiding and, and kind of solid um, attention, um, what does your soul need? What is your self-destructive impulse telling us about your soul's journey, your psychology right now, that needs some abiding attention? Right, because so many people are walking around thinking, like, this is just who I am. This is just the way things are. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that they're not feeding themselves uh, in a very nourishing way. They're not taking care of what feeds their soul and not really listening to their body, right? Like, you're, if you are having self-destructive tendencies, it's usually something you need to change. And for whatever reason, you're not making that, that very... Not easy change, because if it was easy, you, you would do it, or obviously do it. But maybe you're not aware. Maybe you're not even aware of mm -hmm. this behavior being linked to something else. And so, it, you know, the it sounds like the ketamine opens that door so that it, we can invite Dr. Mara Cohen in and then figure out how to, you know, uh, what's going on in here. You know, so absolutely. So That's some right. Of, mm -hmm. I was just going to say, so yeah, most of the people that we see and especially the people that I see in my office um, in terms of psychopharmacologic treatment, their symptoms are usually of such severity that they don't have the, the tools, the wherewithal, to take those important steps to get well. Mm -hmm. So between effective pharmacotherapy, so medication management, psychotherapy, and ideally ketamine exposure, we get them to that, you know, that, that theoretical well, it's not theoretical, but to that threshold point at which and above which they can now, you know, implement these changes. Mm -hmm. A great example so. of that is a patient that we shared that um, uh, was not able to sleep mm -hmm. at all. And so sleep is so critical to human brain functioning and, and creative functioning and, and wellness that without Dr. Wexler kind of getting that in hand, there would have been, there's no, you know, it's like trying to speak with someone who's starving um, or who's sleep deprived. You don't have their full attention. They're not really present fully in the room. This patient referred to a medication that Dr. Wexler prescribed as, it was my parachute. I can sleep again. That's why I'm here today. So it was, so this synergy, it's, it's a complicated, ever-changing kind of equation with each patient. And, um, it, it's science-based, and it's also an art. Fantastic. What What's the, usually uh, the cost per session? Are these uh, does it is it usually covered by insurance, or is there, uh, or just depends on where you go? Our insurance system is broke. Yes. Broke <laughs> in it it no funciona. Um, so we function outside of that system. Right. Um, I, we've, we but, both but understand it. But it, it is the case with any relatively new treatment that insurance does not cover it, right? Not until, you know, there's, there's adequate evidence of efficacy. Mm -hmm. um, and then, right, the powers that be get involved and start to provide some degree of coverage. Mm -hmm. 
So that's partly our motivation to be speaking about it is to give it legs, to give ketamine legs so that it can get on the formularies so that people people can have access to it. It's, it's limited access at this point, and we feel that it needs more access. Oh, it's just like a massage. It's like mas- more massages should be covered under my insurance, mm-hmm. you know, because it has so many therapeutic effects. Yeah. And you talk right. about making you feel better and, yeah. uh, ex- you know, mind expanding. I mean, what's better than laying face down and having... Some, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, that's, um, that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> but yeah. seriously, there's so many things that aren't covered by insurance that should be that would, you know, make us all feel, uh, you know, a little spa day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No. Um, but, you know, it's so you guys are operating outside of the, the purview with that because, like you said, it is new. But at some it's, point, it's, it's, it's I'm sure. It's unfortunate. Yeah. But, um, you know, this is the way these new technologies typically Absolutely. start. Yeah. And we're doing this and, and are grateful to you, Leo, because this gives us a platform to start to spread the word, increase awareness that this exists and can be incredibly effective. And then is this something only administered uh, by psychiatrists or are there other, you know, because, you know, like with any new drug or any new thing is like so many people are going to try to jump on board and try to peddle it and sell it. And it's like who, you know, for the listeners out there, who should they go to besides you two? You know, you're, you're in L.A. Um, like, you know, how, how do they know where to, where to get it from? Go to their doctor and start there or their therapist? That, that's a, also a really good question because, um, you know, we're seeing – different specialists actually getting in on this IV infusion clinic act. Um, I don't know what the exact percentages are, but I think psychiatrists only manage what, 30 to 40% of them. Uh, and I would argue that, I mean, the infusion clinics are really the bailiwick of the anesthesiologist. But if you go to an anesthesiologist who is doing this sort of irrespective of whether the patient is getting any sort of mental health treatment concurrently, you know, that may not be optimal. So if, well, so the ideal would be an arrangement between an anesthesiologist mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe, right, a, 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 you know, psychiatric, um, you know, nurse practitioner or physician assistant, mm-hmm. um, or the other way around, a, a physician assistant or nurse practitioner who is in anesthesia, anesthesia working alongside a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. that would be the ideal. Uh, we're not seeing that too much. Yeah, yet. I, it makes so much sense, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, because my listeners know, like, I also personal train. And, you know, I tell my a lot of my clients, like, I, I can't do it all myself. Like you getting to your goals is going to require a team mm-hmm. of people, mm-hmm. whether that right. means myself, bring on a nutritionist. But usually most people need to go see a therapist, right? Because a lot of people's eating habits um, are e- them having, having, having not figured out how to manage their emotions or other areas of their lives. Um, so it only makes sense that I think that when I look at the literature and I've talked to other people who have been like, well, I tried ketamine and it didn't work. I think that it's because they only tried the ketamine. 
right? And they didn't pair it, right? It's a part of those. Like, you don't bake a cake with one ingredient. You need multiple ingredients. And if you're you're just trying to go for the quick fix, you're not going to see the the full benefits of it. You might get the quick hit, which is great, but really the things that you are taking it for are still going to exist. And if you haven't gotten to the root, of the of the problem and the issue, it's only going to resurface and it might come back oh, harder. That's right, right, <laughs> which yeah. we've seen. Yeah, yeah. So it is it is important to 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 address all the components. Yes. In changing a life, particularly if we are looking at the intersection of a life feeling not worthwhile. Right. It it that's took right. a long time to get there, and and but the bio psycho social all important self-care is a a word that is bandied about nowadays and to your point earlier before we began speaking Mm -hmm. uh this a lot of people don't know how to do self-care it's i hear adults all the time say just tell me how to live (laughs) and and i just it just tickles me because it's like yeah we all feel like we need nannies you know somebody tell me how Mm -hmm. to where's the it's a lot of work to boil the beets or grate the, mm. you know, to get everything where it needs to be. I have enormous humility around the difficulty in being a human on the planet, in a human body. Yes. Um, there's a lot of technologies and, and a lot of information out there, and it's great to have a team that can bring expertise to certain very specific areas, um, have it coalesce into a team that feels wonderful. And that's right, because comprehensive treatment is biopsychosocial. Right? It's the bio- biological as well as the psychological. And so ideally, someone reaching out to a clinician offering infusions um, should also you know, be working with, you know, ideally, a collaborative, cohesive tre- uh, treatment team. Yeah, so, so you know, it's, it's more about creating a strategy versus having a tactic. Oh, this this is the new hot thing I just read about or right. just hopping on. It's like, let me really think about how to incorporate this in my life so that it, you can get consistent results versus quick results, right? Mm-hmm. This is what that sounds like and have somebody manage it for you along the way cuz even if you know, with my clients who come to me for personal training or if they go to a nutritionist, you're you're going there because they have to tweak it along the way. There isn't this uh, oh, here's a, a men's health magazine workout for yeah, you. It's, one and done. Right, one and done. It's right. like, let's is administer something. Let's see what the results are. And then let's make adjustments and move along the way. How do you feel? How does this make you feel? And I think uh, it, it sounds like a lot of people aren't doing that part of the work of. You, you really have to realize it's, it's a process versus uh, just a quick solution. Well, right? and of course that you know that goes for the psychopharmacology piece, the medication yeah. management piece as yeah, well. Yeah. I mean, how great would it be if you know we could find that magic formula, lock it in, and then that would do the job for however long you know we we determined that a patient should be on a medication regimen. Yeah. No, I mean it's a moving target. Yeah. Now it's it's changing brain chemistry, it's exposure to other medications, it's hormonal changes, it's mm-hmm. life stressors. Yeah. I mean, on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, the process is ongoing. Are there, is there anything we haven't addressed or talked about or anything that you, you want people to know? Because I, I know there's just so many, um, there's so much information out there that, you know, is, I'm sure, causing confusion. Is there anything you're like, oh, the people need to know this that we haven't 
covered or addressed. One, one interesting note that came out of the research of about a week ago that, that had the, the 235 cases of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy um, for us to look at, it showed that the more severe the suffering at the outcome, the higher uh, the, the um, measures on depression, anxiety, trauma, and uh, a measure called the Adverse Childhood Events Scale. Um, the, the more severe the suffering going into the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, the better the outcomes. So it, it seems like this is particularly effective, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is particularly effective when the suffering is extraordinary, when there are very high levels of depression, anxiety, and, and trauma disorders. Right. right. Mm. So the more depressed they are, mm. the more suicidal they are, the better ketamine is likely to work. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely, right? Uh, we're talking about boosting moods. Because sometimes if, if, you're at, at, if you're just a little below and then we boost it too high, right, then it could create some other effects. So it's good to know. And you guys have a way of, you have tests, like you said, there's a way that you test them. And then you also, I'm, I'm saying you like people know I'm pointing to. Mm -hmm. So so Dr. David Wexler, like you have a, a, a way that you test their level of depression right. or to make sure. So we, right, we have rating scales. Right, right. Right, so the, the Hamilton D, the mm -hmm. Madras, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, it's it's the face-to-face, -face, you know, clinical interview. Right. And that's that's what we got right now. And then are you using, what kind of scale are you using? Uh, they're, they're similar scales. Okay. I mean, one of the Beck Depression Inventory is a real mm -hmm. handy one that's very common and, and liked by clinicians. Um, and the truth is, as Dr. Wexler mentioned, that clinical intuition and having a sense of a person I know before that person has sat down on the couch from the waiting room intuitively, and I have a, a real strong sense of how they're doing. Yes. And sometimes we start in silence, and there's a, there's a, a kind of an assessment that is happening on the nonverbal and on the intuitive. Bi-directionally. In yes. both directions, right? Yes, it's, it's mm -hmm. you know, we, people feel each other, people in the connected space, in the one-to-one, -one. The, the relationship between patient and doctor, between this triad that comes about um, is extremely important. And we believe that the, the ability to communicate and connect between us and the, we have facile communication. We are speaking regularly about people, when people are in crisis, when they're not. There's a, a real um, connectedness in the team and a dedication that feels um, reparative in and of itself and healing and incredibly generative and also fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We love, we love what we do. Yes. It, it, it is. And, and you, you know, you don't, you don't hear mental health treatment and fun right? <laughs> yeah. in the same sentence very often. You know, um. I mean, it's, it's great to be, you know, it's great to be doing this work. It's the greatest work on the planet as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, um, it is uh, very serious work in moments, and also very buoyant and light, and phenomenally mm. fun. Mm. And uh, we live that and feel that. And I think it's part of what accounts for some of the outcomes that we're seeing that are um, remarkable. 
Yeah, it's it's so important to uh, to work with someone that you feel like is really loves what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Versus they're just like, oh, I've been doing this. What else am I going to do? You know, that. And I could definitely feel, you know, when I was talking to uh, D Dr. Uh, uh, Wexler uh, over the phone, I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be fun. And I was like, <laughs> anybody who he's paired up with, because you know, I'm just meeting Dr. Uh, Cohen today, I was like, it, it, she has to be fun too. Like, this is going to be great. And uh, so I was definitely excited to sit down with. Uh, pioneers and 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 nice. front runners right and uh people leading the way because I, I there's so many practitioners who i'm sure are, are are afraid to get out in front of this but uh it's how we move uh the needle forward and 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 how we make uh, uh you know permanent consistent transformation all, all in the interest of Getting people well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, well, what's also exciting is that uh, I'm going to be podcasting with you each individually because you both have such an extensive uh, history and, and you're, you're both so uh, different in, in what you because I really want to dive more into shamanic training and, and, and uh, or therapy sure. and what that means in your background. And then also, Dr. Wexler, you have such a, a crazy, varied background, you know, uh, going to China, everything like that. So for uh, but this was powerful. Uh, thank you for doing a podcast. Uh, thank you, listeners, for listening in. Uh, where can they find you if they want to work with this dynamic team, this this, uh, you know, Wonder Woman and, and Batman. Uh, how, how do they get a hold of you? So my website is uh, moracohensyd.com. M-A-U-R-A-C-O-H-E-N-P-S-Y-D.com. Right. And mine is davidwexlermd.com. D-A-V-I-D-W-E-X-L-E-R-M-D.com. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, you can reach me at leoflowers.com. Are you guys on social media at all? Not much. That's, mm -mm. that's safe. That's smart right there. That's good. So, you know, they won't be posting your stuff on Instagram. That's even better. Thank you, guys. Remember, we're on Spotify, iTunes, uh, I heart all that rate it leave comments continue sharing uh, I thank you all for listening call the number 1-800-SUICIDE or call the 1-800-TALK number if you just want to talk they're available 24 7 uh, uh, the Trevor Project is a LGBTQ uh, phone number also that you can call uh, if you're struggling with those issues uh, there's no reason for you not to talk to someone. Get help. Uh, that's It's free. It's 24-7. You can text if you can't talk for whatever reason. Uh, and uh, stay well, and we will talk to you again soon.